It's Monday, March 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After a tough week with collapsed denuclearization talks with North Korea and negative testimony by Michael Cohen, President Trump returned to the safety of his base at CPAC 2019. The president went on for over two hours, railing against everything from trade to immigration to the Mueller probe. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for CPAC News and Republican pressure to back down on his border emergency declaration. Next, we're about to get the first marijuana breathalyzer by a California startup called Hound Labs. While a drug test can tell if someone has used marijuana in the last several days to weeks, none of them can tell if someone has just smoked or is currently high. This breathalyzer aims to change that. Aaron Broadwin, science reporter at Business Insider, joins us to talk about who is behind it and where law enforcement will be trying it out. Finally, my favorite thing to do on the weekends, catching up on sleep, might not actually be as good for you as you think. A new study suggests that burning the candle during the week and catching up on the weekends is not an effective health strategy which could lead to weight gain and an increased risk of diabetes. My producer Miranda joins us to talk about sleeping in on the weekends. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know I'm totally off script right now. And this is how I got elected, by being off script. And if we don't go off script, our country's in big trouble, folks, because we have to get it back. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. There's been a lot of news flowing around in the political world. The president didn't have such a great week last week. The talks with North Korea collapsed. Michael Cohen was testifying before Congress, calling him a a con man and a cheat. And then over the weekend, he went to the conservative political action conference. And there he reveled in his base. He went on for like two hours. He even said that, you know, I'm totally off script right now. But I got elected by being off script. And if we don't go off script, our country is going to be in big trouble. What happened at CPAC? Two hours. Think about that. They were probably expecting at most an hour long speech. That's a really long time (laughs) to listen to any one person talk. And it was at times sort of rambling and angry. He covered a myriad of topics and he really did relish in being in front of a packed ballroom, hundreds of people in the room cheering him on. He went through some of his old campaign highlights. The president likes to get the feedback of the crowd. He likes it when the crowd cheers him on. And he seemed to be to be reveling in that. You mentioned talking about Mueller, talking about the Cohen testimony, talking about Hillary Clinton and her emails. There wasn't much he left unturned in that two-hour speech on Saturday. Yeah, the base was very excited, chanting Trump, USA, USA, four more years, they chanted a bunch. We're talking about the Mueller investigation, things like that. He just, you know, at one point just said, this is all bullshit. You know, they're coming at you with bullshit. He even said something about colleges would need to uh, honor free speech in order to get uh, more funding, federal funding for their programs and whatnot. 
you know, that's a, a, a pet issue of this group that he was speaking in front of. They argue that college campuses have just become so overwhelmingly liberal that the professors are all so liberal that conservatives have been pushed out, that they cannot get tenure, that they cannot be pushing conservative ideologies, and that conservative students are made to feel unwelcome on college campuses. So this group particularly has pushed that issue a lot. And that was Trump in the moment, sort of proffering uh, up new rules that he would that he would push for that would seek to sort of address that concern from that group. On to some other stuff. The national emergency, the House voted last week to rebuke the national emergency, saying it was fake and all. The Senate is going to be voting pretty soon. And it's starting to look like that resolution will also pass there. Rand Paul was the latest one to oppose the president's national emergency. Rand Paul joining a handful of other senators, including Maine, Susan Collins. We could see even more. There was a couple of undecided that could decide to vote with Democrats on this once the number of votes are there needed to pass it. This is a resolution of disallowance or disapproval saying, actually, President Trump, we don't think there's a national emergency on the nation's border. We know that President Trump will then veto that legislation that will send it back to the House. The House will have the option to vote to override that veto. The Senate unlikely to have enough votes, possibly even the House unlikely to have enough votes to override that veto, at which point we'll be back where we started a little bit. However, uh, having Congress vote in this way could bolster some of the legal cases that are starting to work through the system. When you have majorities of both chambers saying they don't agree with them, that does potentially make it a little easier for a judge to say there is a sentiment among elected officials that this is not an emergency. Alleviate some of the concerns that it would be the judicial branch just legislating from the bench or overriding the president on their own. And on the president's side, he's locked in. He can't back out. He's got to go all the way with it. His base wouldn't let him back out. And it would just be another loss for the president if he just let the Senate push him around on that front. So he, yeah, he's going to end up vetoing that. And then finally, uh, I just wanted to, at the end of last week, the New York Times reported that the president ordered his officials to give Jared Kushner a top secret security clearance, despite what those in the FBI and the CIA had said. They they recommended that he not get that. While the president has the power to do that, a lot of people saw that as a, a very unusual step. It is unusual. I mean, we have to remember first that the power to classify uh, to make information secret lies solely in the president. He delegates that power clearly to some other people, but he is the one who decides what is and isn't classified. And the power to decide who gets to see classified information relies solely with the president. And, and he delegates that process too. This is unusual. I mean, we have not seen the children, the in-laws of a president in a long time, not seen any relatives at all working in an administration. That is part of what raised questions. This is not just sort of a business decision by the president. He's talking about his son-in-law. And in talk about the House investigating House Oversight Committee has had hearings on security clearances. They have told us they are going to have more hearings on security clearances. So this is something that we're going to be talking about in Capitol Hill here pretty soon, too. And as with the president, it's the same stuff. It's all about his business ties, who he deals with, people, foreign officials that he's done things with. It's kind of all the same thing. It's like, who are you working with and how could they be possibly impacting you? That's right. I mean, we have to remember that both of these men, the president and his son-in-law, have sprawling real estate businesses that are not just 
buildings in foreign countries, but are buildings in the United States that have been funded by investors from foreign governments. These are not like the kind of business dealings you and I and probably almost everyone listening have. They're quite complicated and and there are lots of money. And that's why the questions have been raised about their ties to people that might try to exert influence over them. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Town breathalyzer measures and detects marijuana for approximately two hours, maybe up to three hours, which is the same window that NHTSA has pointed to as the, as the time frame for impairment. This is totally different than all the other measurement devices out there. Joining me now is Aaron Broadwin, senior science and tech reporter for Business Insider. We have kind of a warning for all of you that like to smoke marijuana and drive there is about to be the world's first marijuana and alcohol breathalyzer. The people behind it is a California startup called Hound Labs, and they're going to be testing it in a couple of pilot programs, one with law enforcement and one with a labor union. Tell us a little bit about the company behind this, and then we'll get into all the details about how this is going to work. The company behind it is a company, as you said, called Hound Labs. They're a startup. They're based in Oakland, which is actually right in my backyard. I live in Oakland as well. They've so far raised quite a lot of money for this device, which is going to be the world's first marijuana breathalyzer. It's a device that also measures alcohol, so it's a kind of two-in-one here. It's a marijuana breathalyzer and an alcohol breathalyzer. They've raised $34 million from all sorts of people. Dick Wolf, he's the creator and executive producer of Law & Order, yeah. Snap, Dropbox, WeWork. They're all providing money to this. And the uh, CEO of this is a man named Mike Lynn. If anybody was going to do this, it's him. He has such an impressive resume. And each uh, field that he's worked in has been touched by the cannabis industry. Tell us a little bit about Mike Lynn. I was so surprised to see that. I actually got to sit down with him and talk with him about the device. And when I looked into his background, I was like, wow, if anyone was going to create this marijuana breathalyzer, yeah, it would definitely be him. His background is right now he's an active SWAT team member. He's a reserve deputy sheriff. He's a professor of emergency medicine. And he's also a former biotech venture capitalist. So he really has worked in every single field that you could imagine that's been touched by cannabis. And as it gets legalized, definitely that's going to play a big role here. Let's talk about the device now and its practical applications. First off, we know how tough it is to detect. I mean, you can do a blood test for marijuana, for THC in somebody's blood system, but this has to do with testing somebody who's smoked recently. Basically, you're high now and you're impaired and you can't be driving. But everybody has a different tolerance to it. How can you tell if somebody is too high? Let's talk about that first, because there is no clearly defined legal limit for driving after using marijuana. Right, exactly. So there are so many things here. As you probably know, there's tons of drug tests out there that can tell if you have used marijuana in the last few days, maybe few months. But there's no device out there quite yet that tells if you've used marijuana in the last couple hours. Cannabis actually reaches its peak concentrations in the brain and body roughly two to three hours after you've smoked. It's a pretty short window there. And this device allegedly can detect THC in the breath, just like with a breathalyzer. You actually blow into the device and it can tell if you've smoked in the last two to three hours. 
dollars, and that's a pretty big deal. There's no other no other technology out there that can do that. When I talked to Mike Lynn, the the founder of this company, he said it took them years to kind of nail down that science because THC. The central problem here was that THC is present in the breath, but in such low, low, low concentrations that it's really hard to detect. So what they spent the last couple of years doing with their technology is trying to get it sensitive enough to detect that. I think the vaping or smoking would probably be similar. What this device probably will not be able to look at, however, are edibles, which are also increasingly right. popular. And then you, there's another issue that you brought up earlier as well that I think is really important, which is can this device tell if you have smoked recently? And Lynn is telling us, yes, it can. And then the second question is, can it tell us if you're impaired? Because you may have smoked, but you may not be severely impaired. Yeah. And the science on impaired driving under the influence of cannabis is pretty, it's in its very, very early stages. I mean, you have some studies that suggest, yeah, people who smoke and drive are incredibly dangerous. You have other studies that suggest, well, people who smoke and are very experienced users of marijuana know their tolerance. And so the, the kind of comparative thing that I like to make here is with alcohol, you have a, the tolerance is very set. It's a 0.08. You blow a 0.08 or right. above that and you are legally impaired. With marijuana, we don't have that yet. The impairments are slower reaction time, bad motor coordination, issues with attention and decision making. How does the marijuana, the Hound Labs marijuana breathalyzer actually work? The device, they have patents on the technology, but what I was able to discern from them is that what they're doing is they created this device. They're being a little opaque about the technology because they want to protect it from other people infringing on their invention. But essentially, they've tested the technology against what's known as a mass spectrometer, which can look at the volume of a certain drug in aerosol. They're essentially saying, like, against this gold standard of a mass spectrometer, can this test detect THC? And they have two clinical trials that they have not shared publicly quite yet, but one of them suggests indeed that they can do that. And they blow into a device for roughly a minute. I don't know how many people can blow into something for a full minute. <laughs> so that's kind of there. But And then the device returns a positive or negative result. So yes, Correct. you have smoked within the past hour or two, whatever, whatever it is, but it doesn't deliver a reading on concentration, like how much Precisely. Yeah. So it will tell you yes or no, you've smoked or you have not, but it won't say, oh, you smoked a little bit. Oh, you smoked barely anything. Oh, you smoked a lot. There's already people that want it now and will be testing, uh, doing some pilot tests. Who is going to be using it r right away? He told me that an undisclosed division of law enforcement was going to be using it shortly in a pilot project. The other group that's going to be using it is it's a trade union that represents, I think, around 40,000 construction workers in Northern California. And that's an interest because when I talked to the person in charge there, he said, you know, if we drug test for marijuana right now with the test that we have, we have no workers because a lot of workers, a lot of people want to use marijuana. <laughs> right. But what we need is a test that prevents people from, essentially prevents people from smoking on the job. So they need a test that says, okay, you've smoked in the last couple hours or you're high, et cetera. Aaron Broadwin, Senior Science and Tech Reporter at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. People who got to have the five hours a night still did the same thing, like you said, the snacking at night, the eating like crap. But when they came to the weekend, their numbers got better because they got to sleep as much as they needed. But by the time Sunday night rolled around, all their numbers plummeted again. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. I hope everybody had a great weekend and got a chance to catch up on a lot of sleep. <laughs> That's like one of my favorite things to do is after a long, hard week of work, I'm looking forward to that first day off where I can just 
sleep in, not have any worries. There's been a new study done on sleeping and catching up on your sleep after a long work week. And now they're telling me that it might not be that good for you. Miranda, what do we know? Yet another thing we're here to ruin for everybody, sleeping in on the weekends. So this study out of the University of Colorado had 36 adults stay there for two weeks and they were split into three groups. One group was allowed to sleep for nine uninterrupted, beautiful, blissful hours of sleep at night. That's a long time, nine nine hours. Oh my God, sounds like a dream. The second group had only five hours of sleep at night. And then a third group was given five days of five-hour sleep nights, followed by a weekend where they were allowed to sleep as much as they want. So after the two days, though, they had to return to their five-hour sleep night schedule, which is pretty common, probably typical American work week. Exactly. During the two-week period, the participants' sleep and exposure to light, food intake, all of that was monitored really closely. And they found some really interesting things. Yeah, the groups that had their sleep restricted ended up snacking more at night. They actually gained weight and saw declines in insulin sensitivity. So you kind of extrapolate that. They say basically you're going to gain more weight and you're more susceptible to getting diabetes because of all this. Yeah, they're saying the group that got the nine hours of sleep at night didn't have any change in their metabolic outcomes. They probably just maintained their regular homeostasis. And even more interesting, they found that the weekend people, the people who got to have the five hours a night still did the same thing. Like you said, the snacking at night, the eating like crap. But when they came to the weekend, their numbers got better because they got to sleep as much as they needed. But by the time Sunday night rolled around, all their numbers plummeted again. Yeah, the scientists call this uh, phenomenon social jet lag when your sleep and wake cycle is disrupted and there's long term negative health effects because of this, including obesity, all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's been tons of studies and things done about the benefits of getting a good night's sleep. They say you should get seven hours of sleep per night. That's when your body is doing the majority of its repair work on your on your body, letting you rest, get all that stuff. But consistency is really key there. And without it, it throws your whole body in, out of whack. Well, they're saying if you sleep fewer than these recommended hours of sleep per night, they say you have these hormones and one is associated with satiety and the other one is associated with increase in appetite. And they both go out of whack when you're sleep deprived, which is why you have poor impulse control. You're reaching for the carbs. You're reaching for the coffee or the soda. And that's what jacks up your body that's weight. Me. I think I drink soda uh, way too much. Same. Another uh, interesting sleep study that came out has to do with parents. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, you know, depriving yourself of sleep and interrupting your sleep cycle. This one was kind of interesting because it says for new parents, they reached the lowest point of sleep in the first three months after having a baby. And six years later, parents haven't fully recovered their sleep schedule. That just sounds incredible to me. Well, I'm two years into the six, so I got a long road ahead of me. And what they don't tell you is that at the end of being pregnant, too, your sleep is terrible because you're so physically uncomfortable. So the bad sleep starts even before the baby comes. But according to this Oxford University study, they found that... I love this part right here. (laughs) uh, Both sleep satisfaction and duration were lower for both parents, moms and dads, but that women saw an average of sleep reduction of 62 minutes a night compared to men who got... 13 minutes. (laughs) 
That's just ridiculous. Sounds about right, I'm, actually. You know, that's uh, you know, that guy needs to get kicked in the butt a little bit more. Well, they're saying it's because it's the association of breastfeeding, which I can attest this is true. Moms have to get up more in the beginning because you're breastfeeding and the babies at this age need to eat like every three hours. It's that it's right. that much. You have to get up and just feed them. But they're saying that even six years after birth, moms are still sleeping 20 minutes less than they did before they were pregnant and dad's 15. So it About starts to even out. Yeah. Everyone's but that's old. pretty uh it's pretty bad. 15 <laughs> minutes to uh, over a little slightly over an hour for moms. Come on dads, get it in gear. Yes, dads, right. step up. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.